Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Something else. Oh, God. You're unable to rejoin this meeting because you were previously removed by the host. Oh, man. I mean, How what rude. world do we live in where you can't have a second chance? <laughs> that is brutal in its finality, isn't it? It really is. It's like, sorry, do you see me? There you are. Thank you. Thank you. We've done it. Hello. Um, I'm very, very touched that you said yes to this. Thank you. I'm thrilled uh, to be here. I told you I started listening once I knew that I was going to do it. Ah. It's wonderful. You somehow set the table for a really nice conversation with people. Wow. That's, there's always a first time for it to go wrong. Well, it's true, and it could be the guest's fault. Hello. <laughs> David Tennant does a podcast with Jim Parsons. I've noticed that in the podcast, I'm always interested to see how somebody's going to say their name. Like yeah. Whoopi Goldberg was very like, I can't even say, but there was an enthusiasm behind it or whatever. There was an exclamation point when she said it. That's true. There was. And I can I can hear it as you say that. But there was also a kind of Whoopi Goldberg. What the fuck? Absolutely. There was a kind of, I am allowed to be here. I do. Yes. It's interesting, isn't it? How we say, our, I never feel particularly comfortable voicing my own name. I don't either. It feels awkward and clumsy in my mind. I could not agree more. And we've had to do it in our profession a lot, like in, yes. a, in a much more formal, repetitively formal way than I think most other occupations would ever understand. Constantly getting in front of a camera saying, Jim Parsons, uh, six foot two, yeah. um, reading for the role of whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or some version of that. Yeah. Slating ourselves, I think we call it. Do you call it something yeah. different there? Uh, we would understand what that meant, certainly. Yeah. What would you say? I don't think we've even got a term for it. Yeah, you're be- You Americans are better at having terms for things like that. So that you is that true? Them. I think it's true. Yeah, we okay. would just go. Oh, just say, say your name. Say your name and uh, give us right. your agent's name. Well, I would prefer that actually. I don't like. I don't like that it's got its own name. To be honest with you, it seems like such an informal silly little thing that it doesn't deserve its own title. That may be true. Did you ever do those auditions where they would make you hold up? They wouldn't even get you to say it. They'd make yeah. you hold up a card yeah. with your name on it, like you were a prisoner um, of war. It, well, but back to our point about having to say your own name, as if you're going to get that wrong in some way. And I don't mispronounce, <laughs> but like give the wrong message. <laughs> yes. Like that's not a good case. Don't trust them. Write it down. But you're right. This prisoner of war. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> it's not a good look for anyone, is it? No. I don't think. No, but you remember too the old Polaroids? Oh yeah. Everything was Polaroids. And yes. in fact on set it was always Polaroids. Like like costumes and makeup would have like those huge binder rings That's with true. the hole punched through the white part of the Polaroid with like all your different looks. Like a Rolodex. For every scene. Every scene. The thing I've always wanted as you see, Polaroids, they will have existed on every big I mean now it's all done on people's iPhones. But yes. they will have existed on every big movie. Why is there not a massive black market? 
in Polaroids of Al Pacino in filming The Godfather 3. Or, I agree. I, I, I've never understood where they all go. Well, and not only that, but it's not just like, it's not just a behind the scenes look. I would say a majority, and if not a majority, at least 50% of actors are complete jackass goofballs anytime they get a continuity yeah. uh, picture taken. Yeah. And so you get some really sometimes tragic, especially of your own, if you feel that way about yourself, but, but some f- real gold from these pictures of people. Like yes. people like Al Pacino or whatever, pulling some facial, like, when would he ever do that? But it's yeah. on set and getting continuity shot. And they're all gathering dust in some- I guess. You have to assume they weren't like burned, you know. Yeah. Oh no, somebody's they gone. They were kept. I, you would just think that there'd be a thriving market for that kind of memorabilia. Well, I mean, I don't know that everybody knows outside of our industry, and maybe it just hasn't occurred to the type of... They do now, you know. We might have opened the floodgates here. I hope so. Yeah, yeah. I don't have that many of me, because they transitioned by the time I was doing it. Yes, well, it no longer exists, but I remember it very vividly. One of my first big TV jobs, I remember... I did exactly that on every Polaroid. And again, this goes back to one's own <laughs> one's own sense of self, one's own um, feeling that you have a right to be there. On every Polaroid, I felt the need to sort of pull some goofy face or lark yeah. about. And until about a month in, the makeup designer, who was quite a stern lady, went, "This, I am a professional doing my job and you are no. not allowing me to do my job. And I got really, really properly told off. Yeah. <gasps> And it, I, I've never I heard suddenly that. felt like a five-year-old schoolboy, and and ever since. Oh, I'm sure really, you did. Oh, I was gutted. I don't. I don't respond well to being scolded. No. How does it make you go? Does it make you punch mm. back, or does it make you wither? Uh, no. I mean, much later, like going over it in bed at night, going, God, I wish I'd have said like. You know what? Yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah, trying yeah. to make the world a better place. How sure. you know? But at the time, w- at the time, no. I I just want to crawl away. I just yeah. uh, I don't I don't I I think I know that I have a fear of authority. Mm. That's a real thing. I mean, mm. I'm conscious of it, so I try not to let it get in my way. But in all honesty, I mean, that's what that stems from. To take of this course. serious with the, wow, with your makeup deep. story, we've gone but, deep but, fast. but it's true. I know that's what it's about. It's like yeah. I because I would agree with her to a degree. You are a professional. Yes, she was right. That's why I you withered. are. You are the authority in this moment, and so mm-hmm. I'm kind of having as much fun with it as I can because I I don't know. I'll st- I stop everything I'm doing to let her do whatever she needs to do to get her picture or whatever, and you're in her hands. And then mm. to f- to find that you've misbehaved in that moment, uh, that you it's bad feeling. And it was the first time I'd had like a like a like a, a decent role in a big TV show. No, I was oh, little, I was like number three. I thought, oh, this is no, this is fine. I can do this. I'm yeah. like, sure, sure, I can goof around. And in that moment, it was like, no, you not only. Do you get this wrong? You don't deserve to be here. Go back to Paisley. Yeah. All that. All that. How old were you? Oh, 30. Yeah. Early 30s. So you and I both, I guess, then were later in being in the kind of work that you would be recognized for or 
working with honest to God, constant professionals all the time, not not kind of rotating in and out of I do a commercial here and there and then yeah. I'm back in the garage doing whatever, which is fine. Yeah. I don't I yeah. had a great time doing that. But yeah. Yes, probably actually not dissimilar. What age were you when Big Bang Theory happened? When Big Bang started, I was 33. Right. Okay. I was probably about 33. I considered that. I still consider that's been a real blessing for me that it, my trajectory happened the way it did. That, that it didn't happen to you when you were 18? Time-wise. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to handle it no. for one thing. No. I was a I was a late bloomer in some ways. Not that I was ever irresponsible to the well, I mean, sure, I mean, but you know, I, like I wasn't a tragic case or whatever. But uh, but I wouldn't have known how to compute all this kind of stuff at all. Right. Even just being on set in in that kind of pressured environment, or I would have made it very pressured for myself. Right. I know I would have. Right. And I wouldn't know what to do. Never mind any public recognition. Yeah. I mean, Dear God, I, I've talked about this before, but the amount of things that I know I got to do in life, and I'm not going into them here, um, that were no one cared about. You know, not only did no one know who I was, but we didn't have cell phones to take pictures and stuff. Uh-huh. Oh God, thank you, Jesus. You know. Yes. I, they were normal. They were normal, but normal doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't seem to me, you know, mm. or it doesn't always matter. Things get taken out of context and... I don't know, one one old image or whatever, and suddenly you find you're explaining the whole reason you're allowed to walk the earth. Of course, yeah. Well, the culture of outrage is so fierce now, isn't it? And the, the, the need yes. to, to bring down anyone who may feel like they have yeah. the right to be uh, in front of us. Yeah. Yeah, of course. No, I think it must be very difficult for, I don't know, the stars of sex education or whatever who are all, you know, horrendously young and beautiful and yet yes you're right camera phones everywhere you go when you when you should be allowed to be making some mistakes yeah or just have yeah. a nice time or just live yeah just live exactly yeah yeah, yeah. yeah quite when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. So yes, last year... You finished, mm-hmm. didn't you? You did. Yeah, it was almost, it was a little over a year ago. You did your 279th episode. Is that what it was? 270, I've looked it up. And you've been working on it for 12 years. Yeah. It, it burnt you into the Mount Rushmore of comedy. I mean, a massive, <laughs> a massive show. Uh-huh. Countless awards, endless adoration. So talk me through the thought process, which makes you mm-hmm. decide 12 seasons is enough. Um, well, I think the, oh God, it was a complicated road as you can imagine. I mean, in retrospect, it wasn't, it was just happening before my eyes. I think we signed a two-year 
our final contract was for the final for the last two years, but no one knew when we signed it what that would mean. I kind of had a suspicion in my heart, I think, that that was going to be it for mm. me when I did sign that contract. But you never say never, and who knows? And then we went through the 11th season, and then that summer I went to New York to do Boys in the Band on Broadway. And... I think anything I felt got really affirmed. It was a very intense summer. I mean, and not be- or partly because of the part and the the experience of doing the play, but more because, oh God! So we were rehearsing in L.A. the play largely for me because I was doing Big Bang, and so I would go to work in the day. Which it's a sitcom. It was a multicam. It wasn't hard hours, and this is not a woe is me. It was just a situation. I would rehearse and then go to rehearsal for the play after Big Bang rehearsal, right. yada yada. And then when the end of the season happened, we shot our last show on a Tuesday night of the 11th season. And then Wednesday morning, I flew out to New York. And Thursday, I started tech, which they had started without me. And I want to say by Monday, we did our first preview. We ran Monday through Saturday. We took Sundays off. I don't know why, but that's what we did. And... On that Sunday that I had my first day off, I shot a commercial. I had a, a a contract with Intel. And so I had scheduled that and I was exhausted and I was really upset about it. More than anything, one of our dogs was getting really at the end of his life around then. And I'll never forget that walk around the park to let him go to the bathroom before we went to the commercial shoot. He just looked so bad and I was so tired. And Todd was like, that's my husband. He said, we got to go. They, we've, we've scheduled this. We've, they fit everything around your schedule. And I just started crying and was like, it makes me upset now. <laughs> I was like, this talk's going to die while I'm off working. And I feel so bad. <laughs> this is so funny. Um, so you're talking about triggers. But anyway, so, um, so I went and did the commercial and I came back and and then Monday I went to do the play and uh and he had a really bad seizure that night and so I knew that we had to make a decision and that Wednesday I had a matinee and so the decision we made was we called somebody the the person comes and puts the dog to sleep at, at home. So that happened Tuesday and as you can tell, <laughs> it really upset me. Still does. And so I went back to the show, and I did Wednesday the two shows, and I did Thursday, and then I did Friday, and then I did Saturday matinee, and I had one more show Saturday night. And I got, I was in the Saturday matinee, and I kept thinking, I was like, I don't, I don't know how I'm gonna get to the end of this performance. I just, I was just so beaten down, and but I did, I did. And I walked out for curtain call, one more show that night. I walked out for curtain call, and I slipped, and I broke my foot. It was the scariest moment for the next couple of days, because I didn't know. I felt like I was at the edge of a cliff, and I was teetering, and I saw something really dark below between the death of the dog. And I, I don't... I don't know what they would have done if I couldn't have gotten back on for the play, but I did. 
and I did it in a boot for several weeks. And then I did, um, and then I got out of the boot and these weird shoes. And then I finally got into these regular shoes. But the <laughs> bottom line was it was a really intense summer. And the dog passing away, he was 14. And Todd and I had been together by for 15 years at that point. So it just was the end of an era. And it was, I saw, I had this moment of clarity that, I think you're very fortunate to get in a lot of ways of going, don't keep speeding by, you know? Yeah. Use this time. It's so, so funny the way it still upsets me. Use this time to take a look around. And and I did. And I was like, I, I gotta I gotta make I gotta make a move. Um the the other thing was that this is the most morose podcast you will have ever recorded. The other thing was that my dad had passed away years before, but he was 52. And I realized that at the end of season 12, I would be 46. And and it, well, I'm not superstitious or anything like that, but it was just a context thing. And this is what I said to Chuck Lorre and Steve Millar when I talked to them when I went back to work that year. I said, if you told me that like my father, I had six years left to live, mm. I don't, I, th- I think there's other things I need to try and do. And I don't even sure. know what they are, but I can tell that I need to I need to try. So right. I cannot so believe you, this is the way this podcast has started for me. I really I, can't. Listen. I'll blame quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's interesting. You had absolute clarity yeah. because of where you were. Well, but, I mean, yeah. And and it was it was one of those moments, like I say, that I felt fortunate to have. It was kind of, you know, clarity thrust upon you, as Shakespeare might yeah. have said. It was I wasn't yeah, sure. I didn't know that I was searching for it, but between the dog and the foot and just I was like, okay, let's 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 take charge here. And so that's yeah. exactly what, what happened. Um that being said, I was I never had feelings of like I don't want this show to go on without me. In fact, I kind of felt the opposite about it. And I don't even know if I can explain why, but I just had a feeling of like, there's so much good going on here. So many people love it. It would feel, it would have made it even feel like a bigger thing in a good way to have been able to go, yeah, you were part of it. And it's even, it's bigger than you. And you know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know if I can fully explain that, but but the biggest thing was I just knew that people working on it, not only for some of it was, was complete joy, which overall I think it was for almost everybody, cast, crew alike, that worked on it. But but, but a lot of people <laughs> could use the work. And that's always, mm. you know, when an actor uh, quits anything or stops doing anything and it does close down like that, there's always that – that part of it that other mm. people who were like, um, I could use the work, dude. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. just that's just the way this business is, and that that part's hard. And was there was there any tension with others who wanted to continue? Did you get any um, flack for that? N- no, we've worked in a very respectful environment for the most part. I mean, we're humans or whatever. But I mean, one of the keys to the success of that show. There are so many you couldn't that are a mystery you wouldn't know. But one of them I know for sure was it was a very professional cast. I mean, you know, because we were on a comedy, we were asked for over a decade every turn of the head. What are the pranks on the set? And it was like, well, there aren't any. I mean, you know, we save it for the stage, I guess is what I'm saying. And I don't know what would have happened if there had been 
a more organic, by Hollywood's terms, uh, discussion to happen, like if it had been a contract thing. I don't know. And when you first decided that acting was for you, did you have mm-hmm. a sense of what kind of actor you would be? I mean, did you did you see the theatre or something to head for, or was it? Did you want to be on a sitcom? Or I mean, did you have a sense of that, or was it just uh, was it more general? I would say it was more general, but I would also say that I knew that I had uh, some reason. I was I had a, an ear for comedy. Rhythm is okay. really what it is, in my opinion. I have, I have, I had, I had good timing. Is that because you were the, like the funny kid at school, or because you? No, I mean I could be funny, but that was more of a defense mechanism. Like I wasn't the class clown, but I was more. Oh God, I felt you know. Well, I mean I was gay, and I didn't. I mean, I was somewhere I knew that, but I certainly wasn't dealing with it. And uh, and right. I was always afraid of being made fun of, and so I would you know try to be on top of that um which is not to say i had a miserable time in school i really didn't but um no i i I really i really think any comic timing i have is more related to music than it is anything else it's just i i think it's a rhythm issue i really do didn't you do a production of noises off in high school that's right that that felt like a big moment there were there yes yes there are two seminal moments in my life as far as an actor and the first was doing noises off as a junior in high school and i mean maybe there's myriad reasons but the one that i can know i can point to is that i was set free by the farce element all I, the fears of being revealed or being in my mind, there was no chance of somebody watching saying, oh, God, that's what he's really like, because it was just so outlandish, the situation and everything. And ironically, but not, <laughs> I was able to be more myself in that role and actually engendered. I've never forgotten it. My best friend at the time, it was it was such a glorious moment. I knew it was well received and I was so I felt I could feel it. I knew it was something good going on. And he said that was it was just like you. And I wasn't horrified after that because I was being well received, of course, but it was ironic that that was what his response was. And the only thing I would add, as long as we're saying this, is that I've only kind of thought of this recently. The second really seminal moment for me as an actor was then in college when a student there asked me to be part of these Charles Bush plays and I was put in drag. And again, because... Well, this went more to a gay issue or or trying not to appear effeminate on stage. Um, I was let loose of that. In fact, I needed to appear feminine to a degree. And I, without that burden, without that fear veiling over what I was trying to bring as an actor, I I felt an ownership, a power, I guess, um, to control. To I don't want to say control the stage, but take stage, and uh, that I wouldn't have had otherwise, or it might have taken me a longer time to get there. But that was kind of one of the, for me, the last thing holding me back was like, okay, I'm not afraid to be my quirks on stage and bring who I am and my sensitivities, but I am afraid to of revealing the gay. And once that was taken care of. Um, and is that because at that point you weren't admitting it even to yourself or just to the outside world? I don't know. That would have been around the time I was coming out. I don't think there was much more hiding it as far as that goes. Um, 
of an eager young man. But um, but I do think that I was afraid of not being able to play anything but gay parts, not only uh-huh. if I came out, but because I would appear effeminate. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the irony was, I think I discovered how to, well, obviously to let the fear go, but that me just, there. what are you talking about? What it was just, people behave in all sorts of ways and it doesn't, mm. I am who I say I am when I take on this role, um, you know, and, and that's, that's the bottom line. And yeah. I don't know. Did you feel there was a pressure not to come out when you started working as an actor? I knew having grown up in Texas and, and I don't mean to throw my mother under the bus. I love her. And she's, she was a wonderful woman. And if anything, she would just be worried for me. And I know that was a concern of hers that, I mean, I could feel it off of her. And maybe she even said it to different degrees of like, how would it work to be a successful actor in the, at the, what, I don't know, level you want to be or whatever, make enough money at it really and pay your bills with it and be gay. Where, where does that fit in? You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, what was the atmosphere in spring Texas like for (laughs) a a young man who thought he might be gay? Was that, would that be, were there precedents around you? Did you know any? No. No. No, If I knew anybody who was gay, they were much more on the periphery in a way I didn't want to be. I I knew that they satellited what was going on. They weren't necessarily a part of it. And that was why, or at least that was my perception. Um, It was such a different world. I mean, you were, were... we're sort of close in age, you you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're different countries, so maybe it was different there. But, like, it just sounds so outlandish, I think, some of this to young ears now. But that was that was just the way it was, you know. And yeah. and it, only the bravest of brave uh, were taking charge of that at that time. And and I didn't have any intention of that. I didn't, I didn't want to be on an outside group. I wanted to be part of, and not just normal, but, like, or perceived as normal, quote unquote. I I wanted to, I wanted to be a part of the big game. I wanted to, you know what I mean? Like I wanted to be. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to be able to be in the main show, and mm. and I think I was frightened that I know I was, especially as a young man, that that would make that impossible. And so, were you living a lie personally at all, or did you always have your personal life and your professional life divided up? Well, this is where I I had so much. It was so fortunate I grew up out of the limelight. I By the time I was, you know, one or two years into college is when I was like, okay, this is, you know, I had a crush on a boy in the department and he was very flirtatious with me, quote unquote straight. And, um, and, and it was really that moment of seeing life in color. You know, you hear it all the time, but it's so true. It's like once mm. you've once you've tasted that, well, that sounds vile, or at least salacious. <laughs> um, that's not what I meant. Nothing happened. But but I, the way I felt about him, I was like, oh, oh, this is what a crush is. I had a right. girlfriend all through high school, and we got along wonderfully well. And we were a couple, and we behaved as such. And so so once I came out to myself and admitted to myself, I the only people were my my family, sadly, but yeah. that's kind of the way it goes. They were the only people who I hadn't told. Everybody else I worked with knew. Right. But I was doing I was doing theater and I was still in school and I was running around, you know, it was low key. It was out of the public eye. Mm. Um, there were no high stakes. There was no interview. Mm. Nobody was asking to talk to me about my work or whatever. No, so sure. no personal questions were coming up that I had to deal yeah. with. There was no cost to it in that way. So did your family not know or did they always know? They didn't, didn't know. Well, maybe they knew deep down inside or whatever. But uh, no, it was um, several years later. It was really when I met Todd 
because right. I had things had gone so well for me in in that regard of like, I'm not unhappy. I don't feel stifled by this that my family doesn't know. So I didn't see any reason to have that conversation. And isn't that handy? And uh, <laughs> But then I met Todd. And I realized when I met him, that was the first person that I loved in a way that I wanted to share with my family. And uh-huh. that that made me sad. And I thought, well, I have to try and do this, you know. Uh, and how did that go? How were they about it? It didn't go great. Right. It's been, it's been, um, it's great now, but it was, it was hard at first. It was hard for them. You know, uh, this was a couple of years after my dad had passed away, which made, I think, really hard for my mom. I mean, you know, as yeah. if her world wasn't turned upside down enough. Now she needed to process this information without his help. Yeah. So that was really hard. And I feel for that very much. Um, but it got better. And I don't know if this sounds shallow, I don't mean it to, but on my part or their part, but I definitely know that a couple of years after that, once Big Bang started and the success of that happened, that all helped too, you know? I think, yeah. again, I think so much of any parent's problem with it, not all of it, and but in my case was fear of how this would make my life not good. And mm. when it started to prove slowly, surely, more and more that it was actually had my life was going just fine. I think that that allowed a lot of relief. I'm sure it did. Mm. How could it not? You know? Yeah. It's interesting when you uh, have the success that you have had and, and you also happen to be gay, Mm -hmm. sort of you become de facto an activist, don't you? In a sense, there's a sort of the very fact that, that you admit that in a world where still not everyone who's in that position is willing to talk about it. That's right. And that was my last hurdle with coming out Uh, in the press. Um, Right. Was because I just, because I knew it was like, you'll be a gay actor from here on out. And, and now looking back, not only has it not been a bad thing for me, it's been the exact opposite. It's been a great thing for me. It's, it's not, it's not untrue, but it's also not. Um, I don't. I don't mind. You know, I, mm. I don't know. Did it feel like a big decision to take though, because you were having to weigh all the all that up, or did it just feel? No, like- uh, no. It mm. happened organically. I was doing an interview the year after Normal Heart with the New York Times, and Patrick Healy was interviewing me, and he just asked. We were at whatever we were interviewing over coffee or whatever, and he asked, um, "Was it more meaningful to you to be a?" a part of the normal heart because you're gay or something like that. And I was like, well, okay. here we are. And I went, yes. <laughs> and okay. I thought, well, I just sort of came out through the back door, um, which again sounds dirty in this conversation. <laughs> anyway. It's a little. Um, yeah. But but it kind of was appropriate because to your first question, I wasn't I wasn't trying to hide or, or from my friends and family by that So you'd point. never lied about it? No. Oh, no. It's I'd just, never, like, just never been taken my girlfriend to the Emmy Awards or what. Yeah, no, yeah, it yeah. hadn't happened. Yeah. I just had yeah. found a way to not, you know, invite the conversation if I could keep it at bay. Somewhat cowardly in retrospect, I guess. Well, but I, I think it's interesting what you say because I think it, within our lifetime, which is, you know, it spans a relatively similar period of years, I think there has, it is, it is hugely different. When, when we yeah. were kids on TV, even even people who were evidently gay weren't talking about it. They were they oh, might be like using Paul Lynn, for Christ's sake, you know. 
Well, we had, I mean, like we had Larry Grayson, for instance, who okay. was hugely successful. And and his act was all about making kind of gay innuendo. And, uh-huh. and yet myself as an eight-year-old child watching him in, in Paisley wasn't thinking, oh, there's a homosexual gentleman. No. You know, it just didn't, it wasn't. No, he was and just that, funny. That, he was entertaining. Yeah, he was good. Yeah. 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 Um, so there has been a big sea change. And to 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 sort of grow up through that, it it. I think I hope it's easier for an actor now. Yeah, coming into the industry, I, I, I but mean, I don't know if I don't know. Is that I don't, maybe it's I don't easy know. to say? I mean, oh, we're in such a wonderful but weird time right now, and we have been going into this time right now already. But there's so many opportunities. There's so many. There's so many avenues and venues with which to make a show and all types of characters, and which is not to say that they're all equal. You know, you can not everything is going to be like a level of a big bang, and and so you yeah. it doesn't have the returns necessarily financially that the people involved would want or whatever. And I that that's hard, but but just I mean, that's, put that aside. I mean, the opportunity to, to represent. And be who you are and whatever. That's I think that's I know that that's more going on in the industry now. It's not far enough, but that doesn't stop or it hasn't stopped yet. The kind of society things you grow up with that might make you personally, even if the industry is even if you know you can work, you may not be wanting to have that conversation. So going back to 2006, when you were before you were uh, one of the biggest stars in the world, uh, you were, how much of a struggle was it? I mean, how often were you doing other jobs? And- Not that often. I um, I was really fortunate when I got out of grad school. Um, I got cast within a few weeks in an off-Broadway play, which didn't uh, pay enough to pay rent. So it wasn't, it wasn't fortunate in that way. But it was crucial for me in that I was a working actor meeting other working individuals as soon as I landed there. And I think it's one of the biggest, one of the big reasons why I have such a love for New York as it was. It's just a, it's just in my DNA now, even from just that moment. But, you know, I spent a lot of time on unemployment and I did, I was working another job. It was this fabric store called Hable Construction. And I was working there a few times a week. And that was the, I guess that was the only job I took once I graduated from grad school that was uh, not acting. But you, because you'd chosen to move to New York to become an actor yeah. rather than Los Angeles, yeah. so you were auditioning in New York. But then you would you would also do pilot season, which was yes. So would you go to LA to do pilot season, or would you do that from New York? I would do it from New York on tape, and I actually got two pilots from New York on tape, which shocked me. I thought every time I taped a pilot audition in New York, I thought, well, these are going into a trash bin somewhere. And then the summer I got Big Bang, I actually had spent out in LA though. And I did go in the room for that. And so I don't know. I don't know if that made a difference or not. I was glad to be there for it though. I've heard you say that you, when you read that script, you knew that that was a part you could you yes. could nail. Yes. Is that something that you would often feel about things or was it was that was it quite unique? I wouldn't say it was often, but it was a calling 
card of mine as an actor to myself, which was that I can I would read a script and I would frequently know when the character that I would be suited to play was suddenly talking. Okay. After a while, not like with one word or something, but like I'd just get through a couple of scenes and go, that guy I could play. And I, I always had a way of wording it, which was that I may not get it. There's plenty of ways to go about things. I should be in the final five. That's how I always said it. I was like, <laughs> it sh- I should be in the final five for this. <laughs> When you, if you know when something suits you, will mm-hmm. you then avoid something that doesn't, or do you kind of go, no, I, I'll make it fit? That's a tough question, but I think my response that I'm thinking is that I—that's when I would need to be invited. And okay, and Hollywood was like that for me with with Ryan Murphy. I ah, I knew that I had it in me somewhere inside to play a darker character, or a yeah. not even dark, although he is, but like really Roy Cohn-esque in his nasty evilness at times. And that was a role that I would love to play. And, and I knew that, but I don't know if I would have read this script and said, Oh, I should be in the final five for Henry Wilson. But Ryan said I could, Ryan said I should. And therefore suddenly I could and did, Yeah, (laughs) you know? Yes. He's a pretty monstrous kind of uh, old school 40s Tinseltown agent. And he has this, he wields great, star-making power, which he also abuses for his yes. own sexual, sexual needs. and gratification and yeah. advancement. I, are, are, is there a catharsis in playing someone with no moral compass? Is there is there a kind of yes. liberation to that? Oh, utter, complete. Uh, you know, there were two things about this part, which was number one, the lengthy makeup process, which, uh, which is funny to me because... I, I, it's not, I keep saying no one would look at that and go, who is that? That's not, no. I had a friend who said, she goes, it's like you were shot through um, a spidery, creepy filter. And I said, that's a really good way of putting it. <laughs> yes. um, but, but between going through that two and a half hour process every day and changing my eye color from blue to brown, from putting in those teeth, just the different hairline and stuff, it was... Um, it was very freeing to me. It goes back to what we were talking about with Noises Off and the Charles Bush stuff. Right. I, I had no fear that this vile, anyone was going to confuse the feelings of this vile character from my own. And so I was free to embrace them completely and, and make them my own. And, and, and once I did that, it was, I felt like a kid in a candy store. I really did. I loved saying some of the horrible things I said. Yes. It also requires quite a lack of vanity, doesn't it? I mean, I'm particularly thinking of the the dance of the seven veils that you did to an unresponsive Rock Hudson. I mean, is that for a scene like that again? Is that part of what you're saying? There's a real liberation and a joy in that, or do do you need a stiff gin to do a scene like that? I didn't end up needing my version of a stiff gin ended up being homework on it because when I first read it. And I, I saw down to his last two veils, I thought, motherfucker, Ryan promised me that only people 27 years old and younger would be showing that much flesh. So that's my first thought. Do. It's a very <laughs> naked show. Yeah. And I didn't have to do any of that. Thank you, Jesus. Um, but, uh, but then I started going into, I don't know who, I know who Isadora Duncan is, but I didn't know how, what, what does that mean to want to emulate dancing by her? Anyway, one thing led to another. And I just started, like I say, doing my homework and looking at it and moving around my apartment in that way. And that's when it started to get really fun. Not because I was enjoying my own moves, but because I was loving the fact that this character that we've seen in this vile, power-hungry, 
gay but really machismo like fuck you way his his spirit animal was this diva of a dancer this joyous sexual and that line they put in there shut the fuck up i'm dancing it was like yeah this is my moment bitches i am yeah. i am beautiful and that really worked for me and i knew that i didn't have to be a good dancer and i certainly didn't have to look beautiful i just had to know that henry felt that way and that I, that was really fun it's a fantastic series it's a real sort of love letter to to movies and at the same time exposing how miserably the industry has treated issues particularly yeah. around race and about sexuality yeah. and it's a, ho- a whole big sort of what if you know what yeah. if hollywood had dared to be progressive in the right. 40s. I found it I found it really moving actually because of how miserably far away from that reality we still are. I agree. Um and and even since that series has been released of course with the yes. the terrible stuff that's happened with George Floyd and, yeah. and the Black Lives Matter m- movement. Where do you think our industry is at with that? Do you think we've I think, think we've hit better? a tipping point. I think, okay. well, I, well, yeah, I think we were getting better. I don't think we were getting better enough, uh, obviously, yeah. and not quick enough. And I think we've hit a tipping point, and I don't know exactly where it's going to land. It's a curious time. There's no, no real work going on, but maybe that will work in its favor because, mm. well, I don't know why. I'd be making up to understand why. It's just that it's such an extraordinary moment in the world in general. Maybe that will couple with this moment of realization. I feel more, to use the parlance, awoken, uh, awoke, awakened suddenly in a way that I would assume that I had been before. I, I don't know. I don't know why the confluence of everything in the world, but something about the latest, this the George Floyd video really seemed to make, I felt it. There was a, a, yeah. a, a, an extra sense of fuck this enough. Yeah. I don't know the answers. I don't even know how I'll be able to play a role in helping. But something's changed. Something's changed. Mm. And I think it will change. I do think it will change in industry. I think, oh, it's, it's, and I don't mean this in, um, I don't mean to sound callous. So much of this is about power and money. I mean, look, I think colorblind casting and making sure we're telling the stories of people whose stories haven't been told, all that is, of course, crucial and important. But to... Try and do that simply through the way everything is right now will never get us any further, or it won't get us much further. It mm. It's the people whose stories need to be told need to have their literal representatives in the biggest seats of power. Um, I'm not telling anybody how to do that, but it's just how I feel about it. We need to see more... Uh, people of color in the executive positions of different places. And I need not to be quite as, oh, there's a black person in the room when I go into a pitch meeting as I, and I don't, I, um, I hope that I don't even get in trouble just for saying that in this world. I don't know who I don't want to be taken wrong, but that's how I know things have to change because that yeah. is still a thing. It's still remarkable. Yeah. At times, at least, to see a person of color in 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 a multitude of positions of power, I and that's not that's why we're still in the shitter, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Um, I do want to I want to talk to you about Todd. You got married in 2017. Yeah. How did yes. you meet? We were set up on a blind date in 2002. I've been in New York for a year, and my good friend from grad school, Tammy. 
she was close friends through their husbands, actually, to the woman who was Todd's boss at his ad agency. And um, I was lonely and he was lonely. And so they scheduled for us to meet. And uh, it really worked immediately. It really did. So the whole Big Bang Theory journey that changed your life, uh, you know, uh, completely reimagined what your life could be, that he's been on that whole journey with you the whole way. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no, you know, if there's two things I'm grateful for, it's the number one, that kind of success hitting later in life for me, because I had been through a lot of other things already. And the other huge one, and probably the biggest one is uh, to have already fallen in love, to have a partner in this going forward. I think Mm. that, I think it's always been harder. You know, I worked Obviously, for many years, I worked with Kaylee Cuoco, who was 20 when we shot the pilot. Um, and uh, and I always felt and she's happy and successful and, and married uh, to a great guy. But but watching her as a young woman and dating people without even knowing what was going on or not going on with her, I thought that's got to be really hard. I think that would have been hard for me, too. Well, I think it's a difficult thing to lose your anonymity isn't it to it changes yeah. how it changes how strangers react to you so to yeah. have your partner to have that nailed down before you go into that exactly and their expectations of what you're going to bring into this relationship like yeah. well with them comes maybe some baggage maybe some notoriety maybe some yeah. picture taking of it. i don't know you know and that's yeah. just it's just it's just more hurdles to get through of getting to know somebody you know and figuring yeah. out who they really are. When I hear you talking about your life with Todd, you it, you you describe it as a very normal life together. You really yes. relish the normality of that. Yes. But as a as such a recognizable human, how easy is it to have a a, a, a boringly normal life? Surprisingly easy. I mean, one of the things is we run a very lean machine as far as a home life goes. Like we're not. We're not a celebrity couple who has any assistance or people running around the house working with. It's, it's just us and the two dogs. And so, right. you know, anytime we've looked at an apartment or a house or whatever, something, the laundry always comes up. And I remember specifically a realtor saying, yes, the laundry's in the garage, but you won't be doing it anyway. And I was like, well, who do you think is going to do it? We do not have <laughs> I don't know what people assume is going on, but it's really the opposite, you know. Um, so I think that's helped. I mean, both of us grew up with such a stable home life, thank God, you know, parents that stayed together and loved each other. And and we kind of just know no other way than to make it work, um, both on a day-to-day basis and, and kind of the relationship-wise too, you know, highs and lows or whatever. Well, that's just what that's just what it is to live with somebody. Yeah. So what do you still have left to do? Either as an individual or as a couple, what's the... I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, again, this is kind of back to the the existential question that I was starting to ask myself before the whole world started asking it, which is like, we've all been granted this moment of pause and I don't know who could fight hard enough to distract themselves to not take some level of look at like where I am, what's going on, what do I really want to do next? Um, I'm excited about it, but I'm not exactly sure what to be excited about yet because I don't know what world we're walking back into. Yeah. I read something that said when 
we're about to walk into 2030, basically. And a lot of the changes that would have slowly happened from here until 2030 will be accelerated. And it was a whole long mm. piece that I didn't, I'm not smart enough to regurgitate here, but I thought I have that. I kind of know what you're saying in my heart. I feel a sense of that. Like, it won't just be because of some masks and some gloves and some hand sanitizer and distancing that things are different. Things have changed while we've been in here. And and much like 9-11 was in this country, a lot of the changes you won't really realize until a few years down and go, oh, that's right. We didn't always go through these kinds of security checkpoints. We didn't always, yeah. whatever it's going to be. Yeah. It might have been unfathomable five years ago, but now this is, I, I'm going back would seem, you know, might as well yeah. light up a cigarette in a plane. <laughs> you know, we yeah. can't even imagine that now, but but that's they did it. <laughs> well, Jim, it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you so oh, much for this. It's been a joy to talk to you and listen no, to you. you. I've loved running through season one. It's been oh, so much well. fun. Yeah. Well, you've made season two. The highlight of season two. Yeah. Right no, you really have. Judy I, I, Okay. <laughs> you and Judy. Yeah. yeah. Side by side, cheek to cheek. Um, listen, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank, thank you. you for struggling with all the wires and all the... No, nonsense. no, it was a pleasure. Um, and I hope we get to meet in person one day. I do too. That would be really nice. does a podcast with is a something else and no mystery production produced and edited by Zoe Edwards additional production from Harriet Wells Sarah Camlet, Steve Ackerman and Georgia Tennant the sound engineers were Josh Gibbs and Gulliver Lawrence Tickle the executive producer is Chris Skinner <laughs>